the Spirit does not speak in ways that are independent of Scripture. Apart from Scripture, we would never have known of God's grace in Christ. The biblical word, rather than spiritual experience, is the test of truth. Affirmation. The in, we affirm the inerrant scripture to be the sole source of writ divine, written divine revelation, which alone can bind the conscience. The Bible alone teaches all that is necessary for our salvation from sin and is the standard by which all Christian behavior must be measured. We deny that any creed, counsel, or individual may bind a Christian's conscience, that the Holy Spirit speaks independently of or contrary to what is set forth in the Bible, or that personal spiritual experience can ever be a vehicle of revelation. Just a wonderful summation of the issues when it comes to Scripture alone. Let's try to keep in mind something of the world that Martin Luther entered into when he was born in 1483. There was a world where the main event in the church was the Mass. It was a theatrical event. Churches in their architecture, in their inside decorations, in the icons, all were designed to create a drama and to immediately engage the senses as to what the Bible taught through pictures from the Gospels. In many towns, there was only one sermon during the year, and that was at Lent. Gothic doors greeted the worshiper. And inside, and this was Luther's experience, he speaks to it, Inside is the picture of Jesus at the last judgment, and he ain't happy. And he stands there. He is waiting to measure one's own obedience as to, well, essentially, how much purgatory would you have to experience? But then there were the saints that you would see in the icons. They were amiable friends. They were people that you could go to and you could get merit from their excess merit. There was the Virgin Mary. Ah, oh, compassionate and understanding Mary. She would be more than, more than welcome to embrace, but not that stern, judging Christ. And holy days, they would be reenactments. There would be reenactments of the gospel, some of the gospel stories. But in all of this, Jesus' person and his work buried, buried deep in, the, in such days as All Saints Day and superstitions and relics and pilgrimages. Where's the gospel? Where's the gospel? I'm really doing kind of a feeble effort at trying to, this is what disturbed Luther, that he was trying to find his way to God but God was just constantly angry. And what could he do to placate God's anger but by just finding more and more ways in obedience and denying himself asceticism, sleeping out in the snow at night with no blanket on him, 
fasting, 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 starving himself almost to death, just punishing himself, trying to show God that he was denying himself and wanted more, wanted to please God by all of that doing, doing, doing. I won't uh, trouble you with a lot of dates. They're are important, but we are going to be working within a frame of time from Luther's birth from 1483 to 1546, his death. Of course, you can know a couple of things uh, should we should know. In 1450, the printing press was invented. Yes, this is when the Middle Age version, Middle Ages version of the Internet broke into the world, and it was like that. And it impacted the world through the, the Reformation coming up years, decades later, was uh, it, could it have happened without the printing press? Uh, <clears throat> five years later, after the printing press was invented, the first book that was printed was the Latin Vulgate, the Latin Bible. And, ironically, the first publication that came off the printing press was Papal, a papal indulgence, which was the spark that just blew everything up for Luther, selling indulgences. And then 62 years later, after the printing press comes about, the 95 theses were hammered onto the door in the Wittenberg church. And do you know that Luther himself didn't see a Bible until he was 20 years of age as the University of, of, of uh, University Library at Erfurt, 20 years of age, first Bible that he saw. Then when he did enter into the priesthood, he was given a Bible. It was, interestingly, it was, this is not it, but it was a red leather, uh, this is particularly dear to me, this was the Bible that uh, my father gave me in 1957. And... Uh, I, I cherish it, and Luther was given a, a leather edition of the Bible. He had it for one year. Then they took it back because he had to get into other kinds of studies and physics and whatever else. But that was it. He didn't, he, he was, it was not until Luther uh, came along in, uh, through here. He got his earned degrees, his bachelor's degree, his master's degree, and then ultimately his doctorate degree. He was a genius. He was brilliant. And then, uh, as he began to, he was taken to uh, to teach at uh, effort to teach in the um, in the university. He had to lecture on the Psalms and Romans and Hebrews, and things began to happen as he devoured great portions of Scripture. Well, let's consider. What scripture alone is like, to which part I've already spoken to to some extent, Luther, uh, spirit, scripture alone in Luther's world. That <clears throat> Luther himself said, and I, I'm giving you some issues, thoughts, and points here in my outline that come, you don't have them, so don't, don't panic. I am coming to those. That one thing that we can note is that Here's what Luther said, and I'm going to uh, go to one of the books that I'm going to recommend as well as read from it. Uh, this is The Legacy of Luther. This was uh, published just uh, last year, 
It's an excellent, excellent book. This gets you into the theology, the, uh, the family man, Luther, uh, Mighty Fortress is Our God, Steve Lawson, um, Michael Horton, Scripture Alone, an excellent, uh, excellent chapter, and many other chapters. Okay, I, I'm, I'm recommending it if you really want to get serious about this. Good book, The Legacy of Luther. And here's what Luther said with regard to, as he reflected on the, uh, the Reformation, um, here are his words. If I had kept at it, I would have become exceedingly good at locating things in the Bible. <laughs> at that time, no other study pleased me so much as sacred literature. With great loathing, I read physics, Aristotle's physics. And my heart was aglow when the time came to return to the Bible. I read the Bible diligently. Sometimes one statement occupied all my thoughts for a whole day. That's <laughs> just a little bit of Luther. Talk about a man who got obsessed with the Scriptures. Thank God he did. And so I think this would be, uh, I told you I was going to do a little bit of reading. This I'm reading from. Why the Reformation Still Matters. And here, listen to this with regard to how Luther described the Reformation. I opposed indulgences in all the papists, but never with force. I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's Word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with Philip in Amsdorf, Luther's friends, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever inflicted such losses upon it. I did nothing. The word did everything. That's quintessential Luther. So here, consider now the whole matter of the authority of the church. I have the quote before you. And this, as he spoke to the authority of the church, he describes the battle. I answer that God once spoke through the mouth of an ass. I will tell you straight what I think. I am a Christian theologian, and I am bound not only to assert, but to defend the truth with my blood and death. I believe freely, and will be a slave to the authority of no one, whether counsel university, or pope. Now, that got him in a lot of hot water when he began to speak that way. A lot of trouble. And he lived a significant part of his life uh, uh, with a price on his head because the consequences of being a heretic, uh, you just weren't written a traffic ticket. Uh, you would be burned at the stake as some of his, those who preceding him, like John Huss in Hungary, uh, he had so experienced that. As a matter of fact, that became an issue in one of the early debates with, that Luther had over the issue of indulgences, and he was called upon to uh, say, uh, are you a Hussite? Well, that was kind of a, quite a, uh, a charge because Luther had to brush up on it. And he, he, so he kind of backed away, and then they took a lunch break. About he went to Chick-fil-A, he went to the library. This was at the debate, and he went to the library, and he read up on Huss, and then he came back, and he said, We are all Hussites! <laughs> that rattled their cage. Uh, what a story. What a story of this man. 
And so therefore, let's consider just for a moment the relation of inspired Scripture to the uh, to tradition. That the way in which the Roman Catholic Church viewed Scripture, uh, the authority, uh, well, the whole authority issue, is you actually, authority was like a three-legged stool for the church. You had the Bible, which they were willing to say was authoritative. But then you also had the church councils that had spoken to the various issues that came up through the first 13, 1400 years. They would go to those councils, and those, the decisions of those councils, and including this was the, the Pope when he spoke ex cathedra, that is, from the chair. And what you would therefore have to do is that you would have to listen to the, what the Pope said the interpretation was. You couldn't take it upon yourself to say, I think this scripture teaches this. And this is what uh, Luther ran smack dab into when he began to make his assertions with regard to his critic, criticism of the indulgence system <clears throat> and the, whole, the matter of uh, justification by faith alone. And then they would say to him, who do you think you are? Luther, and I'll tell you this man, Luther, I made a little sidebar. When you want to study and courage, you study the life of Martin Luther. And I've seen <clears throat> those who've discussed Luther who aren't particularly theologically oriented say this is a man who stood against the world. He really did. One of those rare individuals in human history where he actually stood against the world by himself and put it all on the line. And so this was the challenge. And he challenged the Pope on this. Now, in this, the legacy of Luther, uh, on page 102, is that <clears throat> I, I light upon this, this statement, <clears throat> which, uh, and where Luther said this, that the real question had to do with the relation of inspired scripture to tradition. Now, this is Michael Horton in his chapter in this book speaking to this. That, in other words, is Scripture alone God's inspired and errant, and inerrant word, the source and norm for faith and practice? Could the Pope say truly that his words are equal to those of Peter and Paul as they find them in Scripture? Are counsels infallible in the same way as Scripture? The Council of Trent, and the Council of Trent uh, was the Roman Catholic response over an 18-year period from about uh, what, 18, 1546 to uh, 1560 something, and it was for the purpose of answering the reformers, and it uh, it dug in, and so the Council of Trent argued that Scripture and tradition are two streams that form the one river of God's word. So, get that sense of it. This is what Luther was up against, what he had to face. Now, I think that it would be, again, helpful to listen to what Luther says when he, he had a problem with the papal church and its corruption of spirit, scriptural faith. Because as he began to study the Bible, and you know, they say Luther probably had memorized by the time... <laughs> um, as, as he began to read the scriptures, he began to ultimately memorize... One source said he had memorized the entire New Testament and any great portions of the Old Testament. And his mind was just e extraordinary. And this is, uh, this is what Luther says, and I'm reading from the legacy of, uh, of Luther. 
He says, when Luther's speaking now, told you, I want you to hear Luther. My voice is not important in this. Listen to Luther. When the teaching of the Pope is distinguished from that of the Holy Scriptures, it is, or is compared with them, it becomes apparent that at its best, the teaching of the Pope has been taken from the imperial pagan laws and is a teaching concerning secular transaction actions and judgments as the papal decretals show. In keeping with such teaching, instructions are given concerning the ceremonies of the churches, vestments, food, personnel, and countless other puerilities, fantasies, and follies without so much as a mention of Christ, faith, and God's commandments. He would have none of this. How do you distinguish between truth and error? Is it going to be the way in which you listen to the church? And how you respond to the church. Now, Luther became a fascinating person in his relationship to Scripture. I'll only scratch the surface here tonight. When he finally got his copy of Scriptures and he began to lecture, his, you know where he first went in which he just devoured? And he called it his little Bible and he wore it out. And that was his copy of the Psalms. He loved the Psalms. But he lectured from 1513 to 1517 on Psalms and Romans and Hebrews and Galatians. Something was happening at this time, which was a part of, you can see, the providence of God setting things up for the Reformation. There was a kind of humanism that was developing at this time, which wasn't necessarily a spiritual movement, but God, his hand was in it, called the uh, Renaissance Humanism. Don't confuse this with humanism that came up on, in Europe in the back in the 1700s. The Renaissance humanism was a desire on the part of many scholars to go back to the sources, to go back to Greek and to Hebrew for those who studied the Bible. Let's go back to the original sources. So Plato, Aristotle, that sort of thing. And one of the things that came out of this was a brilliant man by the name of Erasmus who <clears throat> published a Greek version of the New Testament. Now, Erasmus is going to be quite a, uh interesting. You, 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 you kind of like him, but you don't like him. Because, and Luther had some of really butted heads with Erasmus. But Erasmus helped everybody with this. He produced this, the Greek New Testament. It was devoured. Devoured. And because nothing like that had existed before. And you see, this ties into the fact that up until that time, the only Bible available to the church was the Latin Vulgate. And it was not a good translation. Actually, it contributed to many errors that could be found in the the church's theology. And there are examples, I'll just have to fly over this so... We won't have to make decisions like that. But, for example, the word in Matthew uh, where it speaks of, uh, of, it should be the word repentance. It is metanoeo in the Greek. The Latin Vulgate translated penance. Penance is that stuff that you do to uh, work off to get your forgiveness. Not in any way related to repentance. That's one thing. 
And then there was the statement in the Gospels which speaks of Mary as full of grace. Well, the Catholic Church had taken this to teach that Mary was one who had all this grace, all these merits that came, grace that she could give to you. You remember I used the Red Bull can over in the um, that Wednesday night. We did the carry-in, and I told you about the Red Bull theology of the Roman Catholic Church, is that salvation, justification, is a process through time in which you are infused with the love of God. And so the sacraments are the shots of Red Bull, shots of Red Bull. And therefore, you, get, you can get merit, you can do these things, penance, after, uh, the mass, uh, last rites, um, you, baptism, you can get your merits touching the relics. You could, oh, if you could go to Rome and touch one of the relics there, maybe one of the nails from the cross of Christ, you might get, you might get about 100,000 years off uh, from purgatory for doing things like that. And so therefore... The Vulgate, with its teaching on where Mary had this grace to give and excessive merits that she could share with struggling Christians in this life, that's not what it says, full of grace. It was that she was favored by God. The other examples. Now, there was also the issue of the Apocrypha, which came up. Because in the Greek, not in the, in the Hebrew edition of the Old Testament, the Apocrypha is not found, but you have these Apocryphal books that existed. I have my copy here, and you find in the Apocrypha, this was a go-to place for Roman Catholic theology. For example, the Second Maccabees 12, 40 through 46, prayers for the dead, which the Reformers couldn't stomach that teaching, which the Catholic Church said, pray for the dead, pray for the dead. They got it at Second Maccabees in chapter 12. So there were those issues. Now, let's consider this, the quote comes up at this point, with regard to the claim of the Catholic Church. And I'll read it, even though you can read it. Uh, Let's go. As a result, the Church, to whom the transmission and interpretation of Revelation is entrusted, does not derive her certainty about all revealed truths from the Holy Scriptures alone, Both scripture and tradition must be accepted and honored with equal sentiments of devotion and reverence. That's the catechism of the Roman Catholic Church, sacred scripture and holy tradition, paragraph 82. That's what the Catholic Church believed. You you didn't get me wrong there. You're not saying this is where it's at. No, this is error. But this is where the Catholic Church is even to this day. And then... This was the claim of the church. Now, let's get, to, um, let's get to Scripture alone as Luther believed. All right? Luther comes on the scene. As I said, it's hard to find Luke, Luther's eureka moment when the light really came on. The popular way is to see, you know, he was reading and studying and preparing for his lectures in Romans, and he comes to Romans 1.17 and says, The judge shall live by faith. And he said, I got it! I got it! Well, I'm not saying he didn't get it, but there had been things going on in his thinking before that time, and it may have just been the clincher. Uh, scholars debate this. At what point did he get, have his epiphany? And this was, uh, this was Luther's time, is that the authority of the church, its leaders, its councils, and all of its, com- its commitment to the 
tradition which essentially negated the, the authority of Scripture. And I should, I should put in something here since we're not going on downstream. To, well, in 1519, when Ulrich Zwingli, we go to Switzerland for his part in the Reformation, we'll get that, well, uh, do that in the Sunday school class when we study the Reformation in the class. But there's, see, there's John Calvin. We've got to consider him. We have Ulrich Zwingli. We have John Knox, and we have, we have others. But I refer to Zwingli, Ulrich Zwingli. And one of the things that you will find he was doing in Switzerland as he was coming upon, came upon some of the Luther's writings. These helped to stir him up, but he had his own experience of Reformation and seeing the justification by faith. Now, he was a priest in the Catholic Church, and it was kind of an unfolding thing for him. And that, you have to understand that when you read these, about these reformers, it wasn't they went to bed one night and the next day they're members of a Bible church somewhere and they've got it, everything in place. It just didn't happen that way. Is that they were still in the church, as Zwingli was. And uh, uh, you're going to sing Zwingli was just a, he was a, uh, a bobcat for, for the clarity of Scripture. The Bible is clear. The Bible is clear because you see the, the Catholic Church. Now, Luther made much of this too that the Catholic Church says, you can't understand the Bible. This is not clear. You've got to listen to us. We will tell you what, you, what the interpretation is. So Zwingli came after this uh, kind of thing. And not that Luther didn't, but I'm just trying to bring another personality of the Reformation in here. And also, this is what I think Calvin, John Calvin, I've got to give equal time to the other Reformers. It's not all just about um, Martin Luther. But let me read you, here's something from what Calvin said. He's commenting on 1 Timothy 3.15. The difference between us and the papists is that they believe that the church cannot be the pillar of the truth unless she presides over the word of God. We, on the other hand, assert that it is because she reverently subjects herself to the word of God that the truth is preserved by her and passed on to others by her hands. So you see where the reformers are going? You see how it's unfolding? And uh, I mentioned Calvin, or I mentioned Zwingli. I like this. I got this from uh, one of Zwingli's sayings, is that he was such a, um, such a tiger on this thing of good hermeneutics and handling the Bible in its, in its plain literal sense. Um, he said, Taking verses out of context is like breaking off a flower from its roots and trying to plant it in a garden. <laughs> he had that one clear. Now, let's uh, consider a little something else here in the matter of hermeneutics. The Reformers believed that you were to take Scripture in its literal sense, in its normative, as you would understand, normative understanding of human language. Oh, you sit there and say, what else is new? Yeah, that's the way you do it. Listen to this. Um, another read here. This is from the Legacy of Luther. And this is uh, Michael Horton is uh, commenting on this. This, you, this is what was going on in the church at the time. The medieval church had followed a fourfold sense of interpreting Scripture. Ready now? You want to be good interpreters of Scripture? You just want to take the Bible as it, as it is plain before your eyes, don't you? I know you. 
You think that's the plain sense of it, isn't it? Find that sense, and there's no other sense. And that's what makes sense. All right, but you well, listen now. Medieval church followed the fourfold sense of interpreting Scripture. However, the most important distinction was between, the, li, between literal and allegorical senses. For example, Numbers 27.12 reports, quote, The Lord said to Moses, Go up into this mountain of Abirim, and see the land that I give have given to the people of Israel. Well, the literal sense straightforward enough. God told Moses to climb the mountain and view the promised land. However, advanced readers, advanced readers were encouraged to discern the hidden spiritual meaning beneath the ordinary sense. Scores of spiritual manuals appeared that explained how to ascend the spiritual mountain. You know, one of the things about what I, I could give you other examples of this and how it, how it developed is that if you, if you read a lot, if you read some stuff and hear some of the stuff that goes on, preaching goes on in evangelical circles today, you say, wait a minute, I hear that kind of thing from so-and-so. Um, they find, they're finding these truths there. I didn't know that was there. It probably wasn't. All right, so it's, not an, it's, it, it's still around. But that's what the reformers were up against. So therefore, let's go to these uh, two planks now that you have here in your notes. You have the first plank of sola scriptura. The first plank is this, is that the reformers, Luther said, Scripture's nature. Scripture's nature. And let me read this, um, what Luther said about it. The second plank is, uh, okay, there, there it is. I want to get, I want to get Luther on this. I, I like his. Uh, Luther and the other reformers came to see the scriptures clear in its central teachings. It's the papal church that obscures rather than clarifies. This was what frustrated Luther the, the most about Erasmus. He seemed to think that scripture is clear about how we are to live, but obscure about the most central doctrines of the gospel. And... Uh, this, this is such an important issue here, and I, let me see if I can just uh, get to the essence of it. Let me just read what, what uh, this is what Erasmus said. He said, I didn't come here tonight to hear Erasmus. I want to hear about Luther and the Reformation, but you've got to get this. This is what Erasmus said. He said, but if Scripture is so crystal clear, why have so many outstanding men in, in many centuries, so many centuries been blind, and in a matter of such importance as those would appear. If there is no obscurity in Scripture, what need of the work of prophecy in the days of the apostles? But who succeeded the apostles, he asked, assuming that, the, of course, that the Pope is Peter's successor. Well, do you know what Luther did? I just have to we'll just get a sideward glance on this. Luther, he got on the warpath on this one. He was on the warpath a lot. But he, he wrote a rejoinder to Erasmus. And that's when he wrote what he thinks, he says, was his. Luther said himself, if, if all of his books were lost, he would want this one and the, and the children's catechism to live on. But this book, The Bondage of the Will. The Bondage of the Will. And here's what he said. Let wretched men cease to impute with blasphemous perverseness the darkness and obscurity of their own heart to the all-clear scriptures of God. 
He didn't spare his adjectives, did he? In short, Luther counseled, here's Luther, if you do not understand this and are not concerned about it, then mind your own affairs and let those understand and be concerned about it on whom God has laid the charge. He's saying, Scripture is not obscure. The problem is us, our sinful hearts. And uh, the clarity of Scripture is why Luther wrote the small catechism to instruct children. I'm reading Horton here. And new believers in the Bible's basic teachings. And he did love to make the Scriptures. He even said this, that as he went along in this, uh, the Reformation developed. He said, I will tell you in 15 years, Teenagers, a 15-year-old will know the scriptures better than the priest in the church. You know what? And they did. <laughs> they taught them the scriptures. The priest didn't know the Bible. And so there it goes. All right. I need to say something with regard to the problem of, in your notes, you have a couple of items there, the problem of enthusiasts. Uh, this is, uh, we think of enthusiasm as something, well, you've got to have enthusiasm. It's a positive thing. That's good. We need a church service with a lot of enthusiasm. But let me tell you the way the word enthusiast was used by Luther to describe some of his uh, contemporaries. Not so good. <laughs> because enthusiasts were called by Luther. These were the God within, it was the God within-ism. That's what the word means, in, in, enthu, enthusiasm, God in you. And so God within ism. And they imagined, there were those who came, oh, they gave, they were, they were worse than mosquitoes to Luther, theological mosquitoes. That they imagined that they were God's mouthpiece, like the prophets and apostles of old, like, God has told me to say this. I have a revelation from God. Well, you know, best-selling books go on that one in evangelicalism today. And the danger is, is that it can cut the believer loose from any external authority, including Scripture and preaching. So Luther was, would take no prisoners on this. He said the enthusiasts are dangerous. It, dangerous. Now, I'm, uh, wow, I'm out of time. I say this with regard to the authority of Scripture. Christ is at the center. We're going to deal with sola script, uh, Christus next week, so we'll work on that. The center of the biblical drama of redemption is Jesus Christ, not the church. That's what the Roman Catholic system had done. It put the church as mediating, mediating. And as we'll see, what they were doing is that they were they were diminishing the power and effectiveness and completeness and finish, the finished work of Jesus Christ by saying, we'll mediate it to you. And that's what really got Luther um, on the warpath again, because it's Christ, Christ that we embrace. And so then there is the subject of the illumination of the Spirit. We're going to have time to deal with that. Um, okay, <laughs> I'm going to have to accelerate and... I see some good stuff here of this. I did like this. This is, I'm going to read this from, I liked all this stuff, but I especially like this one. This is the way, the, you, you don't have this in your notes, but in this little book, While the Reformation Matters, there is a, one little section in the chapter on scriptures. It's called The Presence of Christ. And it's showing how that the Word of God creates this presence of Christ. It does. It does. 
And listen to what, here is a quote, or I'll read directly from, this is Reeves and Chester. And uh, let me read a, this is, the reformers went still further. They wanted to insist, the word creates the presence of Christ. Here, listen to it. Imagine a small girl waking up in the middle of the night. She cries out for her father. It is dark. She's confused. She's frightened. And then she hears the voice of her father. It's all right, sweetheart. Everything's okay. You go back to sleep. The voice of her father is a reassurance of his presence. In the same way, the reformer said that the voice of God in the word of God is a sign of his presence. We not, you know, I was, let me finish the sentence. We not only hear God's voice in his word, we experience his presence. Consider, and he has another quote from Calvin, if, I must read part of this, if our Lord is so good to us as to have his doctrine still preached to us, we have that by a sure and infallible sign that he is near at hand to us. Uh, That's a longer quote. It's good. Get the book. Read that. And you know what I thought about? I thought it was Justin was describing Jesus this morning and how he took, um, uh, he took the towel and he washed the disciples' feet and he was saying, see how Jesus loved them? I was, I was touched by that, weren't you? Emotionally touched. That, that's, that's Christ. Uh, Christ's presence was made real at that point. We don't need visions and we don't need extra revelation. It's just... Let us hear the word of God. It creates in a real sense that experience. It's his presence. Actually, Luther says he would rather have the word of God than the actual physical presence of Christ. He said that somewhere I read in here, making that very point. And he he explains it. Sounds funny at first, but he he goes on to explain it. Um, Okay. Okay, I'm going to skip over that. I'm going to skip over that. Um, let's go down to the power of the word and uh, in your notes. And the church, I, I like this little quote. Um, it's, it's not a long one, obviously. It's the one where he says, the church is a mouth house, not a penthouse. <laughs> He's speaking, that's where the word is to go forth in the church. And, uh, okay, that's probably enough on that one. And, I'll just say this, one other thing, that there were, Luther faced opposition on two fronts. The Pope, because the Pope said, I'm the one who interprets Scripture, you listen to me. And that was the way he indicted Luther and said, you're a heretic, you're challenging the Pope. But also these self-proclaimed prophets. We're going to get into that more later on, because I'm telling you, there were some really some crazies who were running around saying, God told me, doing all kinds of stupid things. Reminds you of some kind of 20th century evangelicalism. And uh, all right, let's go and let's, let's wrap it up here with the scripture alone today. And you have some quotes there. I don't need to read those again. But I want to conclude, um, I want to conclude this way. How can the gospel become obscured to coming generations? I'm close. I'm finished. And... Um, you don't have this, but I'm, I'm going to read it. Okay, hold on. I know your mind's probably, oh, it's probably a little full right at this moment. Hear this. Here's what, this is Michael Horton speaking 
in his book, The Legacy of Luther. Erasmus said that the Bible is chiefly concerned with training and discipleship, not in doctrinal issues. Of course, there is more to Scripture than propositions. But the gospel is at its heart a set of assertions concerning God's saving grace in Jesus Christ. His incarnation, life, death, resurrection, ascension, and return in the flesh. The same challenge of doctrinal indifference is evident on every side. Doctrine divides, service unites. We often hear deeds, not creeds. You do have it, okay. Um, Luther replies to us as he did to Erasmus abolish the assertions and you abolish Christianity. Oh. How then can we, are we in danger of allowing the gospel to slip away into obscurity? Let's think of this matter of sola scriptura. Could this happen in our lifetime, in our church, in the body of Christ? Could it happen in our personal lives that our failure to come to grips with the importance of scripture alone, could we then compromise the gospel and deprive a succeeding generation from it. Oh, I feel this heavily being an older man now with my grandsons and my granddaughters. And I think of William Lang. And they're just coming along. And as I was helping Langdon think through some of these things, he's working to try to articulate some theology. So, oh, there's so much. <laughs> oh, Lord, could you give me a little more time? <laughs> and all of us, all of us, to, get, to prepare the next generation. I just say, here, how can we how could we possibly obscure how could we obscure sola scriptura well by personal negligence of the scriptures do you read the bible do you are you on some kind of bible reading schedule doesn't have to be the one that's not a moral law you have to do what we do by the way luther read through the bible twice every year <laughs> among everything else that he did <laughs> and do you are you engaged with the scriptures am i or by allowing our church to grow soft in our catechizing the next generation. That's catechizing, instructing, indoctrinating. Oh, we mustn't grow soft. We have got so much to do to get the next generation of young people, these precious teens, to get them rooted and grounded in the faith. By families, here's how we could, we could obscure the gospel by a family's Allowing the attractions of movies, TV, Internet, Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat to consume our time and energy. I'm not against those things. But be careful, be careful, be careful. Oh, if I had a room for young people, I'd just, ah, get after this. Don't let, don't let those things which can be helpful obscure the importance of Scripture and to be engaged in it. And by retreating from the Bible as our final authority. Huh. Ah, there's stuff going on, folks. Ah, some are making, I've even known one pastor making a little bit of light of 
Oh, the Bible tells me so. Is that the way you live your Christianity? And the Bible tells me so kind of Christianity. And that what we need to do is go out here and look at the historical reality of the resurrection of Christ. And because we believe in Christ, then we come back around. And what Christ said about the word, we'll take that word seriously because Christ said it's been resurrected. And we can come back and then we can find confidence in the word. No, no. Who are you to, to coronate your own mind as determining that method to hear the voice of God rather than go to the scriptures and be engaged with Christ in his presence in the exposition of scripture? So, this is just a call to us that as a church, let's not let sola scriptura become something over which, an area in which we fail. Do we really believe Scripture alone? Well, let's practice what we preach. Help us, Lord. We need your help. We need your help. Lord, there are a lot of people that we represent here tonight, young people, others who can't be here for various reasons. I pray that you will spread this truth like a spreading flame, an unquenchable flame as it is, that, Lord, your word is sufficient. Your word to us. Thank you. Thank you for it. In Christ's name, amen.